The Commonwealth Club's annual Gala and Distinguished Citizens Awards will celebrate four outstanding community advocates and humanitarians who stand shoulder to shoulder with those they serve. Join us on October 28th for an in-person and virtual event and support the club. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Lenny Mendoza, former Chief Economic and Business Advisor for the State of California, a member of the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club, and your moderator for today. It's my pleasure to introduce or reintroduce Steve Case. Steve, as you all know, is an internet pioneer, successful entrepreneur, philanthropist and author of the new book, The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. In 1985, Steve co-founded America Online, which which later became the first internet company to go public in 1992. Steve is chairman and CEO of Revolution, a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm, and has partnered with such on such business ventures as Zipcar, Sweetgreen, and DraftKings. Eight years ago, he also launched Revolution's Rise of the Rest, an initiative to accelerate the growth of tech startups across the country. Additionally, Steve was the founding co-chair of the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship and a member of President Obama's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness. A reminder to our audience that we encourage you to submit your questions for Steve in the text chat on YouTube. I will uh, start the conversation and then add, get to your questions as the conversation goes. So, Steve, welcome back virtually to the Commonwealth Club. It's great to see you again. Great to be back. And always great to be with you, Lenny. We've been on this journey together for the last decade trying to support entrepreneurs everywhere. That seems like yesterday, but it's good to good to see you again. So, Steve, let me start with um, the 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 focus of the conversation on your book, "The Rise of the Rest." So, why don't you give the audience a little bit of context about where this came from and why why you wrote this book um, now? Well, I wrote this book now because I've spent most of the decade traveling around the country, seeing what entrepreneurs are building, seeing how cities are being reimagined, revitalized, renewed because of the work of entrepreneurs, startups, and the job creation, economic growth, and vitality they they drive. And after seeing this now dozens and dozens of times, we've visited dozens of cities with our bus tours. We've now made 200 investments in 100 different cities. Uh, It just was a remarkable story around uh, what's happening all across America that isn't really being told. Most people have no idea that some of these cities are really showing momentum as, as uh, startup cities. So that's why I wrote the book. In terms of the backstory, uh, you, some of this you covered in your introduction. I kind of stumbled into this, I guess, a little over a decade ago when I was asked to co-chair that National Advisory Council on Innovation Entrepreneurship. That led to a series of recommendations and that, you know, that some, the White House embraced and President Obama launched an initiative I chaired called Startup America Partnership. And then uh, as you mentioned, worked on his jobs council, including on the Jobs Act. So for a while, it's very policy focused. What policies could be put in place that maximize the likelihood of America kind of leading leading the charge and and continuing to be the most innovative uh, nation in the world? But then, as you said, about eight years ago, decided to supplement that by hitting the road with a bus, uh, kind of an Americana road trip to different cities. Our first one actually eight years ago was in Detroit. Interestingly, I was in Detroit yesterday for a series of events. And it's a perfect example of of what's possible here. Detroit 100 years ago was the most innovative city in the country when when Silicon Valley, your, your backyard, was still just you know, agriculture, growing fruit, not growing startups. Uh, then Detroit fell on the hard times, lost 60% of its population. The year before we rolled in on our bus, the city of Detroit went bankrupt. And now, you know, just nine years later, it's uh, booming in terms of the downtown area because of startups and, and the work that's happened there. So uh, we then kept, kept going, did, did, did uh, 43 of these city visits. And and uh, it's just been remarkable, as I said, to, to see what's happening in different parts of the, you know, the country. And it, not surprisingly, I think you and others have been watching this. Uh, some of the people listening may be part of this. The pandemic led to a little bit of a rethink for a lot of people, uh, and some people decided to live someplace else, work remotely. 
uh, and that's actually fueling an acceleration of some of the trends around you know, rise of the rest. So I think the you know, book comes out at a, a great time. I think when society's rethinking things, a little bit of a shake the snow globe moment around you know work and, and life and so forth. Uh, and I think it bodes well for what can happen in cities all across the country. The last point I'll make before uh, you ask another question is I, I should point out, knowing this is the Commonwealth Club, that when we talk about the rise of the rest, we're not predicting the decline of Silicon Valley or any other place. Silicon Valley, as everybody knows, is is resilient and robust and for sure will continue to be the leader of the pack, the kind of the, the pride of America, the envy of the world. That's not going to change. But what is going to change and what I think needs to change is creating a more inclusive innovation economy. So more cities have the benefit of creating jobs of the future, you know, being part of the industries of the future. Those communities, as a result, are, are stronger and, and people feel more optimistic about the future. Too many people in this country, you know, feel feel left out, left behind. And what we're trying to do with Rise Rest, you know, hopes, hopefully can address that, at least in part. That's great. So um, book and your tours really were pre-pandemic in terms of the, the uh visiting across the country and seeing and investing. Um, your prior book, Third Wave, talked about the next generation of the internet. Is that an enabler of what's going on or what what is making this possible now that gets you excited? Yeah, I think it was definitely an enabler. And we are, we're seeing momentum build over the last decade. But as I said, I think the pandemic was, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, kind of that tipping point that will, I think, prove to be an accelerant. Uh, but going back a little bit, for those who were not familiar with uh, my the other book I wrote six years ago, um, you know, I, I basically shared my perspective, having been one of the you know kind of early entrepreneurs in, in the Internet, for those who uh, don't recall us. But in 1985, when we started, uh, only 3% of people were online, and those 3% were online an average of one hour a week. So it's pretty early days. And, you know, when we said we wanted to get America online, we were, we were serious about it. The other interesting point was back then in 1985, the, the Internet was still restricted to government agencies and educational institutions. So consumers and businesses actually weren't legally allowed to be on the Internet. It required changing legislation a few years later uh, to, to allow that to happen. So it's kind of early days in, in that first wave of kind of building the on-ramps to get people on the Internet creating reasons why people should get on the internet, getting computer companies to build communications technology modems into products, getting communications costs down so it could be more, much more affordable. There are a bunch of things that have, had to happen in that first uh, first decade. And then, then what followed is this, this, this sort of the, the, this, the second way was building app software on top of the internet. That's obviously where Silicon Valley and Google, Google Facebook, so many companies really rose to prominence, arguably even dominance in that in that second wave. This third wave is where the internet meets the real world and you know, disrupts some pretty big industries like healthcare, food and ag, things like that. And while a lot of innovation obviously will continue to come from Silicon Valley, we think it will be dispersed around the country in part because in those third wave, partnerships will become much more important. And in healthcare, for example, some of the most important hospitals to partner with are in different parts of the country. You may be advantaged to be in those in those cities. And we're, we've backed a number of companies that really build on the unique legacy of, of, of and history of those particular cities. Like in Chattanooga, we backed a company called Freight Waves uh, that built a like a Bloomberg data platform for the trucking and logistics industry. And I didn't know this though we were on our bus in Chattanooga, but some of the biggest trucking companies in America are headquartered in Chattanooga. So if you're building Bloomberg for trucking, actually better to be in Chattanooga than San Francisco or New York or some other places. And we're seeing more and more of those examples. So as this third wave accelerates, as sort of the internet meets the real world, as partnerships become more important, that creates an opportunity for, for you know, entrepreneurs to in different parts of the country to start companies that maybe weren't possible before. The fact that there's more capital now flowing, uh, there's 1,400 new regional venture firms have started up in the last decade. That's sort of a game changer uh, in terms of the capital you know, kind of piece. So I think it bodes well for this dispersion of talent, this dispersion of capital, this dispersion of, of, uh, of, of job creation. As I said, Silicon Valley will still be the leader, but I think it will be less dominant in the next 10 or 20 years than it has been in the last 10 or 20 years. I think that's actually good for, good for, the, good for the nation. How do you create an uh, economy that works for more people in more places? Great. So tell us a little bit about your um, bus tours. And what what those were like, what you learned, it wasn't like you were sitting in your office in Washington and uh, having people come to you to with business ideas. You were out traveling, the, traveling the country. What, what was that like? 
Now we just decided to, partly, as I said, to supplement some of the policy work. I hit the road you know, to see what's happening firsthand. And I remember the first tour eight years ago, I mentioned Detroit. We also went to Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Nashville. To be honest, we didn't really know what we were getting into. We thought it might just be a one-off and, you know, we'd see what's happening in these cities and, and try to encourage more collaboration, more, more, uh, you know, tolerance, support of entrepreneurs, uh, you know, maybe encourage a little more capital to flow, to pitch competitions in every city and made an investment in one of the companies. Um, but after after the first tour, we said, you know, there's something, something about this is interesting. It feels like it feels like maybe we can have some impact here. So we did a you know, second one, then a third one, then a fourth one, then a fifth one, then a sixth one, then a seventh one, then an eighth one. And, and suddenly we've been, you know, in, in you know, 43 cities around the country and and really were struck by what was happening in these different cities. Each is a little bit different, but the, the dynamics were, were you know, had some some patterns to it that were encouraging. And and ultimately that led to starting an investment fund focused specifically on these these uh, these rise of the rest cities and and rather than go to institutional investors, we actually raised all the capital from individuals, but prominent individuals who had success as, as innovators, whether it be entrepreneurs or or, or investors, folks like uh, uh, in your neck of woods, uh, people like Eric Schmidt and Reed Hoffman and and uh, you know, venture investors like John Doerr and Jim Breyer and private equity folks uh, on the East Coast like uh, Henry Kravis, David Rubenstein, hedge fund people like Ray Dalio, entrepreneurs like Tory Burch and, and uh, you know, Sarah Blakely. You know, dozens of, of people joined us on this because they, too, believed in this idea of the rise of the rest. They, too, believed in the idea of backing entrepreneurs you know, everywhere. And, and they believed it would be a good investment strategy uh, because most folks were focused on just investing in, in, a, in, in a few places uh, and also have a way to have a, a, a constructive, positive impact in, in, uh, in, in many of these communities. And just for those who don't follow this, uh, you know, the data, I know you know this, Lenny, but not, maybe not everybody does. Over the last decade, 75% of venture capital has gone to three states. 75%. Of course, California is one, New York and, and Massachusetts are the other two, which advantages those states. And that's probably why a lot of people listening are there, but creates challenges for other states. And, 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 and some of the disruptions in, in places like Silicon Valley end up uh, you know, negatively impacting jobs in other communities. And that leads to you know, frustration and, and, and uh, you know, even, even resentment. So people need to be part of the future, not be left behind. And I think the only way to do that is to you know, back more entrepreneurs in more places, creating more interesting you know, companies and recognize that the, the, the puck has moved a little bit in terms of, of what's possible in this, in this next, uh, next era. Um, so I had the pleasure a couple of years ago of uh, on, on this uh, the Commonwealth club interviewing Jim and Deb Fallows on their, yep. there was a, our towns, our towns and their plane tours. And they yep. uh, had a, similar sense of renewal happening across the country that wasn't being talked about. And they had a set of indicators for places that they felt were on that rise. Do you have a, like, like beer pubs. That was my favorite one. The nine and- <laughs> that was one, one of them. The, the, uh, no, we, we, uh, we've compared notes actually just to exchange uh, uh, messages with, with, uh, with them uh, in the last few days. And we're going to do some things related to the rise of the rest book uh, yeah, soon. Uh, no, they, 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 what they did was it was not specifically focused on entrepreneurship. It was focused more broadly on what are the dynamics that are developing in communities. David Brooks has also done some work on this. What are the dynamics that are developing in communities that are re- resulting in healthier communities? Um, and how can we learn from that? And how can we showcase that? And, and maybe that's, you know, some of those lessons can be applied in other places. So it's a little bit of a broader societal brush that, that they, they've both uh, you know, taken. We, we've been more more narrowly focused on the role, you know, entrepreneurs play in, in, in terms of you know, new, developing communities. And again, this was news to me. And when I got involved in this, this policy work a decade ago, Lenny, because your work with McKenzie and others, you, you knew it long before I did it, but I did not realize I should have, but I did not realize until a decade ago that a most new jobs, net new jobs are created by new companies, companies under five years, not small business, not big business, but new business. Didn't know that. Of course, small business is important. Of course, big business is important, but the net job creation was mostly from new business. So from startups, not just tech startups, but you know, many, many kinds of startups. I uh, did not know that. And also didn't know these statistics around where venture capital is invested. And not every company 
wants or needs to raise venture capital. I want to bootstrap it or figure out other ways to, to finance their companies. But the data also is pretty compelling that the companies that are most successful in terms of creating significant companies, significant values, significant you know jobs uh, are back venture backed. So if we're overwhelmingly backing entrepreneurs in a few places and leaving out a lot of you know entrepreneurs in other places, that creates this this disconnect. So that's really what led us to hit the road. And there's a whole chapter in the book around kind of what makes a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. And you know, there are different seven different factors that need to, you know, each have some attention. Some have more of that than others. There, again, it's not a one size fits all approach, but trying to figure out how to get all these ingredients, kind of elements working together in a, in a, in a collaborative kind of increasing return network effect kind of dynamic is, is, uh, is critically important. Three, I'll just focus in particular on one we've talked about, which is the, the capital piece that some people have family wealth and can fund something themselves. Most people don't. Some people have friends and family that have wealth that they can you know, tap into. Most people don't. So figuring out ways to fund those entrepreneurs with those ideas is important. And that's why things like the, the what I mentioned earlier, the 1400 new regional venture firms is important. So there's a capital piece. There's a talent piece. And in many parts of the country, uh, people have left where they grew up, left where they went to school because they didn't think there was opportunity there and they felt there was better opportunity elsewhere usually on the coast, including many, many folks, uh, obviously, uh, you know, listening to this Commonwealth Club talk in, in, the, in, the, in the Bay Area. And that's fine if people choose to be there, uh, obviously. But it's not as fine if people feel that's the only place they can be if they want to be part of the innovation economy. And so there's been a little bit of a hollowing out of some of the talent in different parts of the country, kind of a brain drain over the last several decades. So how do we slow the brain drain and even create a boomerang? And, and as we talked before, the pandemic has been helpful on this on the boomerang you know, side of it. So winning the battle for talent, winning the battle for people, not just trying to lure companies to your city, but lure, lure people to your city is, is where a lot of the attention has, has started to which I think is healthy. And the final one is creating a, a vibrant community supportive of entrepreneurs. And this is what, as everybody listening knows, is so great about Silicon Valley. This, the art of the possible. You know, if a, a startup that fails is not a, that person's not a failure. It just it didn't work. And they'll, they'll learn something and get up and, you know, keep fighting and eventually will be successful. And when people hear pitches in Silicon Valley, they, they typically tend to focus more on what might go right as opposed to what might go wrong. Of course, you need to understand the risk factors, but you need to you know, spend, suspend a little disbelief and, and think about the art of the possible. And that is great about Silicon Valley. And that is an area, you know, area that has been a more of a challenge in these rise of the rest cities. And, and we're trying to address that through some of the work we're doing. Even the book hopefully will help, help on that front. But creating communities that are more supportive of, of entrepreneurs, are more supportive of, of uh, risk taking. So those are some of the factors that are, that are, uh, worth you know focusing on, but there are others that were outlined in the book. That's great. The um, you know one of the things that was common in the stories that Jim and Deb were telling, and the stories that I read in your book is in many of these communities there was a great history and legacy of important industries and entrepreneurs, but more of a sense of well that was the past. It passed us by, and and you know what can we do now? How how much of this is about community mindset and just a sense that there's possibility to really encourage it. Huge. So that, that's, that's, that's one of the key factors that, that, you know, and one of the things that's been really gratifying to see is when companies succeed in a city, you know, a significant company scales up and we think of it as like a tentpole company, a bunch of things happen. One is that people in the community say, wow, maybe we can do it. You know, maybe we can you know be in the Olympics. Maybe maybe we're not just like the, you know, kind of building you know little companies. You know, we we have the potential to build big companies. That's important in terms of the you know the psychology of, of a community. Another thing that happens is some of the people that you know were in that company early and had stock options, I think, suddenly have some wealth, and they tend to reinvest that at least in part in the next generation of entrepreneurs, an angel investor or starting a venture fund or what have you. And the third thing that happened is some of those people 
particularly as the company gets really big, end up deciding they want to do something else. And they spin out of the company and often are entrepreneurs starting their own company or, again, investors backing you know, companies. Again, this is well understood in, in Silicon Valley. It's part of the reason why Silicon Valley has been so successful. It's only now starting to happen in different cities. One example in the book is Indianapolis, which most people don't necessarily think is a great startup city. It actually is showing remarkable uh, momentum particularly around enterprise software. And there's a bunch of factors for it. You know, got a great university there and some big anchor, you know, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies there. But a lot of it has to do with the success in the last decade of a tentpole company called Exact Target uh, that was acquired by Salesforce in San Francisco five, six years ago for two and a half billion dollars. At the time, people in Indianapolis were worried that Salesforce would shift all those people to San Francisco. Salesforce did the opposite. They've actually doubled their workforce in Indianapolis. Salesforce has 2,000 employees in Indianapolis now, second only to their, you know, San Francisco. And by the way, you know, people in San Francisco know the Salesforce Tower because it's sort of iconic. Salesforce also has a tower in Indianapolis, which also is the tallest building in Indianapolis. So suddenly Salesforce has a huge presence in Indianapolis. But more importantly, some of the people, including the founder, went on to launch an accelerator and a venture fund. And now there's dozens of enterprise software you know, companies that are that are flourishing in the in the greater Indianapolis area. So there's a bunch of things that happen, you know, kind of success begets success, momentum begets momentum. I saw this even here in the in the Washington, D.C. area. We started AOL in northern Virginia, you know, in the Tyson's Corner area um, and at the time. It was not supportive of a startup. There was no venture capital in, in this area. All the money we raised came from New York, Toronto, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, none of it from, from you know, our own you know, neighborhood. Um, and you know, it was a struggle in the first decade to you know, hire people. And you know, it, was, it was hard. But eventually we broke through. Eventually we were, were successful. Now, 35 years later, when Amazon does a second headquarters search, where do they end up? Northern Virginia, not too far from where we started AOL. That was would have been inconceivable three decades ago. So it just shows what's possible if you if you're focused on on launching these companies, backing these entrepreneurs, and and really shifting your economy from, as you say, just kind of legacy industries, kind of historical Fortune 500 companies to you know be launching new companies. And the data point that surprised me also that that sort of and it gets people's attention when we travel around the country is the data around fortune 500 companies, which is that every 25 years, half of the fortune 500 turns over half. So if you're not birthing new companies, you're not seeding new companies, some of your big companies are going to fall by the wayside. You have to offset that by launching some, you know, some new companies, some of which will fail like startup, but some of which could be your, your fortune 500 companies of, of tomorrow. Now, um, even prior to the pandemic, it felt like there was a renewed interest in many local and state governments and to some degree at the federal government in trying to encourage this kind of, call it place-based industrial policy, startup renewal. Yep. Um, and since the pandemic, it's accelerated. In California, we have what started as being called Regions Rise Together, created a uh, community economic resilience funding, the the national level, the EDA, giving out very large grants for renewal. So how much of what you're seeing going on does the is government engaged in this and are they helpful partners or are they do they understand it? What are you seeing from the, the public sector? No, I think they're helpful partners. Ultimately, I do think it comes down to the entrepreneurs are willing to you know, start a company and fight the battle and investors willing to, to, to back them. But I think public policy does matter. And, and you know, some of the work we did together, even with the uh, you know, UVA and the, you know, kind of can startups save the American dream. And, you know, there, there was seven or eight years ago, the work on the, with the president Obama's jobs council 10 years ago, uh, you know, you know, kind of it led to some things like the, the jobs act that were, were helpful. As you say, there has been a pivot in, you know, not every city and state, but most cities and states where governors and mayors who historically focused economic development on just getting a big company to move their headquarters or a big company to open a factory or something like that to recognizing the the real sustainable future and the more economically, you know, efficient uh, strategy is to birth new companies, not just lower big companies. Uh, and now increasingly also lower people as opposed to lowering, lowering companies. So that that's been super helpful. And that's, I think, good for those communities because it, it tends to be much more 
efficient than some big, you know, kind of writing a big check to get somebody to get, you know, to move. Uh, it takes more time. It's, it's much more of a grassroots kind of thing where it takes, takes more time. You have to be patient, but ultimately bears more, more, uh, more fruit. And it's also, you know, better for the country because this battle between states, you know, is really a zero sum game, but we don't add anything to the country. It just, you know, somebody, one state wins, some one state loses, one state probably overpays to win. Uh, and you know, it's way better for each of those, uh, you know, states uh, or, or cities and way better for the country to instead focus on launching new companies. Don't just try to get Amazon to open their second headquarters, figure out a way to get the next Jeff Bezos to start the company in your city and, and, you know, and really create that company in, in your own, own backyard. I think that the recognition about that is, is more significant. And as you have more of these successful tentpole companies, Duo Security in Ann Arbor, MailChimp just got acquired last year in Atlanta for $12 billion. You know, uh, the companies like Epic, which is the leading, uh, health tech company because they kind of control electronic medical records a lot of hospitals you know outside of madison wisconsin when you see that you know these successes you know in different parts of the you know the country it leads people in those communities to believe more and also leads investors on the coast to start to pay more attention to what's happening in 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 other cities but the you know the policy does help and even on the federal side some of the recent policies as you know uh have been super helpful you mentioned the eda grants which also is part of the legislation the chips and science act that passed this summer there's you know $10 billion of funding, you know, authorized for regional hubs. Uh, there's also some funding in the you know, Inflation Reduction Act around, you know, climate tech that I think could, could be super helpful. Uh, government, obviously, federal government obviously needs to do more around immigration reform so we can continue to win what's a global battle for talent. So there is a role for government, but ultimately kind of set the table, set the rules, create the right fertile environment uh, at the national, state and city level. Uh, but then it's really up to, you know, as I said earlier, the entrepreneurs and the investors to, to kind of take it and run with it. So for those of you uh, joining, reminder that we're here speaking with Steve Case about his new book, Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Uh, we will be getting to your questions in just a few minutes. I see a number of them coming in, but let me ask Steve just a couple more and then we'll go to the audience questions. Um, one of the things you talked about in the book, and certainly I've seen on the ground a number of places where I've been working, is the role that uh, our higher education system plays in whether it's in research universities, but also our community colleges and workforce development uh, part of our higher education system. How much is that as a part of the story in the cities that you were you were visiting? No, it's a huge part. And, and you know, in terms of the kind of training people for the jobs of the future is, is, is critically important. And it goes back to the earlier comment I made around the brain drain. Some of it, you know, of course, in the Bay Area, you got you know, Stanford and Berkeley and, and Caltech and a lot of the great, great great universities. There are also a lot of great universities all around the country, you know, Purdue and, you know, Michigan and Ann Arbor and Carnegie Mellon and Pittsburgh, and I can list, you know, dozens of others that are some of the very best research universities and sometimes the best in terms of certain technologies, ag tech or, or other, other kinds of things. Uh, but what historically has happened is when people have graduated, they've left because there's not much going on there. And so that goes back to the point I made around the brain drain, the the, you know, the, the, these great universities exist everywhere. I'm sure many people listening to this who maybe are living in the Bay Area now did go to one of these universities somewhere else in the country. But and they decided probably correctly to leave the, you know, the Bay Area because there was more stuff happening. There more money there, more people, more action, you know, more vitality and, and so forth. It made, made perfect sense. But how do you get more of the create the startup communities in these cities, in Ann Arbor, in Pittsburgh, in some of these other cities. So people are likelier to stay and even some people are likelier to return. And that has changed quite meaningfully in the last you know, decade, both in terms of the startup communities in these cities and also some of the big companies in Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, et cetera, recognizing they couldn't scale if they just relied on, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a, you know, one headquarters strategy. They needed to disperse their, their workforce. And most of these big tech companies have built pretty significant operations, hundreds of people, in some cases, more than a thousand people in these, you know, great university towns like, you know, uh, or cities like Pittsburgh and, and, and many others. So that aspect of it is important. And the other aspect that's important that we try to encourage when we're you know, traveling around, and I, I cite a number of examples in, in, in the book, is how do you get the universities, which always have been a magnet for talent and always been a, 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 uh, a, 
a birthing a birthplace for new ideas, you know, new new things in labs and, and so forth. How do you get more of those ideas in the hands of entrepreneurs that can turn them into startups and turn them into you know, companies? And, and some places are doing better than others, but that's another you know big opportunity where we we uh, can can think about uh, ideas and the dispersion of ideas and the development of ideas in a more uh, diffused way uh, and give people more flexibility to decide where they want to live, where they want to work, how they want to live, how they want to work than, than has been historically you know, the, the, the case. And we've seen this. It's not that surprising that we're seeing this now in the technology sector because we've seen this in the last century in the entertainment sector and in the financial service sector. There was a time where if you wanted to be in the entertainment business, Kind of had to be on Hollywood. That's where the action was. Some people still choose to be in, you know, the Los Angeles area, but I think most people now recognize you can be in the movie business, the music business, you name it, kind of anywhere in the country, indeed anywhere in the world. And similarly, there was a time you wanted to be in financial services. You had to be on Wall Street. You had to be in New York. That was the place to be. And now there's, there's, you know, tons of, of, of really successful firms of all types in the financial services industry in other places and tons of people working for some of the big firms in, in New York that are, you know, have chosen to live in different places. So this is just a natural, uh, you know, kind of dispersion that happens as, as industries progress. I think we're just on the, you know, the, you know, the, we're seeing more of that now in the, in the tech sector. And as we talked about earlier, the pandemic clearly has been an accelerator. Can I ask you a little bit more about that as, as you're, you're now launching the book and having these conversations post-pandemic or through at least the, the most severe parts of the pandemic? How, how has the pandemic affected your sense of the opportunities or the, the context for entrepreneurship in, in, uh, around the country? Well, it was building pre-pandemic. Some of the dynamics around these rising cities you know, we've seen develop pretty much, you know, every every tour we've done every year, it seems like we're making a little bit of progress. But I think the pandemic, we'll, we'll, we'll look back and call it 10 years and say that really was kind of that, that, that tipping point. And it goes back to some of the topics we talked about first. The, the first thing that happened was some people, including some people in the Bay Area, uh, deciding to move someplace else. And some might have thought it was just for a week or a month. Uh, and for some, it probably they intended it for it to be a week or a month. For some, it ended up being a year or two. And for some, it ended up being, you know, come to think of it, I kind of like this place. I'm going to stay. And initially, what those people have done is continue to work for the company they were working for before, but do it remotely. As they you know, as some of those companies shift their policies and say, maybe we want you back in the office, that leads some people to say, well, maybe I should leave. And also, as they're in these communities and see what's happening, including in the startup sector in these communities, that most of them were unaware of what was happening in, 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 in various cities around the country. They say, well, maybe I actually want to stay in the city, but leave that company and do something else because I'm seeing opportunity here. So that was the first piece, essentially around people and, and, and talent. The second piece was, uh, you know, it took most venture capitalists, you know, two or three months to get their bearings as you know, everybody was adjusting to this new world. And everybody was obviously concerned about, you know, cash and, and triage of their portfolio, which companies were going to survive, which company needed more capital and, and so forth. But after a, a, a few months of that, they said, well, I guess if we're going to make new investments, we're not going to have meetings with people because we can't meet. Uh, we're going to use Zoom. To, for pitch meetings to meet, meet entrepreneurs. And they started doing Zoom pitches. And after a while, they said, I guess come to think of it, if it's I'm doing a Zoom pitch meeting, it doesn't really matter if the entrepreneur is a mile away or a thousand miles away, which opened up the, their opportunity for some of these entrepreneurs in some of these other places. And now once people have made investments in these other places, what typically happens is they made an investment and we start learning about other companies in that place, and that leads to other investments. And, and over time, you, you build up some expertise and, and network in those particular you know, cities. So that also has been a kind of a, uh, uh, in some ways, a game changer. It'll be interesting to see what happens you know, over the next five or 10 years. But I think it has opened up uh, the eyes of many venture capitalists, including in places like the Bay Area, to the fact that there are really interesting entrepreneurs building really interesting disruptive com companies in other places. And they're now trying to figure out what is the right strategy to, you know, to, you know, to do that. Um, we are going to go to audience questions here in just a couple minutes, but I have two more for you, Steve, before I do that. Um, I was really pleased to see your chapter 12 talking about the diversity imperative and ensuring that our startup support and 
uh, entrepreneurs look like the America that we're in today and heading into, as opposed to uh, a lot of what history looked more like old white guys like you and me. So um, why is that important? And are you seeing that occurring in, in different parts of the country? Yeah, I think it is important. And it's not just from a fairness and equity standpoint, which is obviously uh, important. It's also from a having more shots on goal, more people, you know, you know, starting things, some of which will end up being some of the biggest ideas, some of the biggest companies. And if you don't have everybody on the you know, field, or at least everybody having the opportunity to be on the field, if they have an idea to take it and run with it, uh, I think we're less likely as a nation to continue to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation. So that there's a broader strategic uh, imperative. Uh, and there's also an investment opportunity, you know, that generally money is made by doing something a little contrarian. If everybody's doing the same thing, it's kind of hard to find a market edge. That's true in the public markets. That's also true in the private market. So, uh, if, you know, if most people are investing in certain kinds of people that look a certain way in certain places, you know, supply and demand will suggest those valuations might be on the high side. And you're know, looking up for you know, different people uh, in different places, there might be more of a of, of an opportunity. So there's there's a mix of factors. But the data for those who don't follow this, I talked about the place based venture capital data. Seventy five percent of it going the dollar going to three states. If you look at people, uh, that even though women are fifty percent of our population, female founders get less than ten percent of venture capital. Even though black Americans are 13% of our population, black founders get less than 1% of venture capital. So it does matter where you live. It does matter what you look like. If you have an idea where you have a chance to really scale it. And as I said, there's a lot of reasons why we should address that. The encouraging thing is as we've traveled around the country, some of the cities we're investing in, Atlanta, Baltimore, et cetera, tend to be more diverse. And the entrepreneurs tend to be reflecting of, of reflective of the communities they're, they're, they're living in. And we have been intentional when we've come into town to try to make sure we are, you know, creating an inclusive environment, that we do things like pitch competitions. We deliberately reach out to a wide range of, of groups within each city before we visit, trying to make sure we are aware of some of the very best entrepreneurs, uh, you know, irrespective of, of uh, you know, where they live or, you know, what their what their background is or, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been helpful. And so right now, I think 41% of the companies we back with our with our Rise of the Rest seed fund are either female founders or, or founders of color, which is still not what it should be, frankly, but it's quite a bit higher than you see in, in most venture firms, including in the Bay Area. Okay. Um, so you're uh, on the bus tour and a uh, college age um, woman comes up to you and says, I'm thinking about being an entrepreneur. And I, I live in, pick your city, Salt Lake City, Indianapolis, Nashville. What what would you tell her? Well, first of all, I'd tell her go for it. I'd try to just encourage anybody who has an idea and thinks it's it could be an important, you know, breakthrough and, and lead to an important company to not just think about it, but to do it. And I would increasingly uh, encourage that person uh, to think about doing it from where, wherever they are in the community they already live in, as opposed to feeling as many people have that they don't really have a shot there. They really need to move someplace else, Bay Area, New York, some other place where where there is more you know, venture capital. This, this number I mentioned before, that 1,400 new venture firms have started in these in these different rise of rest cities, I think is encouraging. There is you know, investment capital in, in, in every city now that wasn't there even 10 years ago. Uh, you then also need to supplement that with the team and find people in your community that want to join you on this on this endeavor and leverage goes back to the pandemic question leverage the fact that remote work is more possible so suddenly companies as they're starting and scaling just as bay area companies can tap into the talent pool in other cities the, the in those other cities can also tap into the talent pool in the bay area so some of the people that have been you know had great success watching a company or helping a company grow fast in Silicon Valley has the opportunity to, to apply those skills to some you know, company in some other you know, part of the country. So that unlocks a lot of the opportunity to, to really build some pretty significant you know, companies from, from different cities all around the country. I'll give you an example. In Chicago, 
we, we this company Tempest we backed, it started six, seven years ago, focused on, on basically precision medicine. People have a diagnosis around cancer, better understanding what the situation is so they can recommend a, a more precise therapy. They've gone on to hire over a thousand people, including a lot of data scientists, the tons of data scientists coming out of University of Illinois. Historically, they'd go to the coast. Now more and more are staying in, 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 in Chicago. This company has gone on to raise a billion dollars and, and has some pretty you know, significant anchor investors, including you know Google. So this is starting to happen. And, 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 the, and the real story of this book and the reason to write the book is it's not just one or two or three cities. It's actually dozens of cities that are really on the rise. So I would just encourage that that woman to you know, understand what, what she's obviously trying to do and why she thinks it could be successful, why that product, that service, whatever whatever the, the angle might be, could be better than the, in fact, meaningfully better than, than the alternatives, uh, and then figure out the right way to launch that company and not presume she has to move to do it uh, or presume that she can only hire people locally to, you know, to do it, figure out some way to build a team, some way to raise the capital, some way to kind of take take a shot. Great. Okay, I'm going to move on to a number of audience questions. So we've talked a couple times about the statistic of historically three quarters of the venture capital going to three states, California, Massachusetts, and New York. If we look forward five, 10 years, long enough to see how these funds have played out, what do you think that's going to look like in that time frame? And where, you know, I know it's hard to say it's going to be this state or that state, but there where, what do you think is going to happen? Is this going to be, there's going to be a fourth state? Is it going to be spread broadly? What, what do you think is going to happen? No, I think it's going to be spread more broadly. And, and you know, how much the three big winner states, you know, California, New York, and Massachusetts have, it's hard to predict. Clearly, it's going to come down from the, the 75%. If it came down from 75% to call it 50%, that actually means the other states have doubled from 25% to 50%. That would be pretty significant in terms of some of those uh, those cities. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a percentage of that overall pool. I think it will distribute. I don't think it'll just be you know, one or two states. I think people will be surprised. Even even I was surprised, again, which is why I wrote the book that profiles 30 different cities and what different things that are happening in, in those cities around usually some of these legacy industries that give them a strategic competitive advantage. So I really do think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be more dispersed. At the same time, it's kind of game on in terms of which cities and which states really capitalize on this and really rise over the next decade. And, and it, you know, there's some trends that give me a sense if I had to write down the list of what I thought the winner's circle might look like 10 years from now, it would be a longer list of winner's circle. And I'll have some cities in there that probably won't be in there because they won't execute against this opportunity. Other cities that, that I wouldn't have necessarily thought would be on that list that are, you know, start, you know, you know showing some momentum, really capitalizing on this particular you know, opportunity. For example, I was at several times in Northwest Arkansas over the years, and and it was a little struggle for them to get going. Now they've really built what's beginnings of a, of a pretty robust startup community. We launched, uh, we backed a number of companies there, one called Acre Trader. The founder actually was in San Francisco and decided to move to Arkansas because it's a a, a company that's really an investing platform around farmland. He said, well, I'm going to create this, par- you know, vehicle for people to invest in farmland, I, I'd probably be better off being close to the farmers. I need to get them to buy into what I'm doing, trust what I'm doing, build build a confidence in what I'm doing. So he built that company in, in Fayetteville. It's gone on out of rate. I think it's $80 million and, 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 and scaling quite quite significantly. Um, and most people would not have thought you know, a few years ago that, that you know, Fayetteville or, or some of these other cities that, that I write about in the book really could be thriving startup communities. So it's it's going to surprise people, I think, overall, how much how many cities rise up and even surprise me in terms of you know what that ultimate kind of winner's circle will look like. Great. I mean, we're obviously talking about the United States, but we're talking about a global economy as well. Are there lessons from other parts of the world around how to encourage a startup environment that we can learn from? Yeah, I think I think it's mostly other countries trying to figure out how to learn from us because America has led the way in terms of innovation, entrepreneurship, led the way with with you know, even ideas like venture capital, which is not that it's like a fifty year old you know concept. It's not it's not it has venture capital as like asset class is, is still you know relatively uh, young, um, and uh, so they're trying to figure out ways to leverage uh, or learn from what we've done to create this innovative you know culture and back some of the breakthrough, you know, you know, companies. Um, but I would say there are some, you know, some countries that have really taken advantage of particular 
industry expertise and insights they have and also create a much more dynamic entrepreneurial culture. Uh, and a good example is Israel that, that over the last couple of decades has really emerged in, in a pretty significant way, in part because of some of their investments in defense technologies and in part because of the success of some companies. It goes back to this tentpole company uh uh, I mentioned yeah, idea I mentioned before. I happened to be with Ehud Barak just a couple of weeks ago at something, and he reminded me that AOL 25 years ago bought a company there called ICQ, a messaging company, for nearly you know, half a billion dollars. And it was a relatively new startup with very little revenue. And it shocked people that that was possible to create such a valuable company so quickly. And that actually led to an acceleration of venture investing in startup companies in, in Israel. And, and so the, a combination of factors really kind of led that to be the case. And if you look at the global numbers around venture capital, 25 years ago, over 90% of venture capital was invested in the United States. So globally, we were dominant. Now it's under 50%. So clearly, we're seeing the globalization of of entrepreneurship, as, as while we're also seeing within the United States, the regionalization of, of entrepreneurship, uh, which to me is just a reminder why we need to focus on backing more entrepreneurs and more places and, and kind of trying to have a more inclusive innovation economy. Other countries have kind of figured out that the secret sauce that you know has powered the American story over the last 250 years is this focus on leaning into the future, backing crazy entrepreneurs, and, and they're trying to figure out ways to do more of that in their countries. You wouldn't be surprised that given that we're uh, in the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, that there are a number of questions about your view of the future of Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Um, I, I heard you mention that this the rise of the rest isn't a statement of a death sentence for Silicon Valley, that it ought to be a positive statement for the rest of the country. But what, what do you think the future of Silicon Valley looks like? And, and what should the folks here be, be thinking about as we enter into this next era? Well, I think I think we'll continue to be bright. And uh, as I said earlier, I think Silicon Valley will continue to be the leader of the pack by far in terms of, you know, kind of innovation uh, uh, kind of regions, not just in this country, but around the world. I don't think that's going to change. It's more this as we get more dispersion, innovation, dispersion of talent, dispersion of capital, its dominance will be be reduced. So I do think we I don't mean it in a pejorative way to people in San Francisco, but I do think we kind of hit peak Silicon Valley a few years ago uh, and and uh, and things will change. And I think a healthy way for for the country over the next 10 or 20 years. It's also um, interesting to me that because so many people just presume people I talk to at least presume that you know Silicon Valley has always been dominant. The, the the two points I make are number one that a hundred years ago when Detroit was the dominant innovation city, Silicon Valley was just fruit orchards. It wasn't growing startups; it was growing fruit. Point one. Point two. In the early days of the internet, when companies like mine were started in the nineteen eighties, uh, it was actually pretty regionally distributed. We were in you know Northern Virginia. Hayes, the big communication modem company, was in Atlanta. IBM's PC operations were in Boca Raton, Florida. CompuServe, a major you know, online service, was in Columbus, Ohio. Sprint, the big communications company, was in Kansas City. Uh, Dell, of course, was in Austin. Microsoft actually started in Seattle, I mean, in Albuquerque before moving to Seattle. So that first wave was pretty distributed. It was only the second wave when it became, you know, kind of software and apps and, and, and so forth. That really Silicon Valley dominance became, you know, clear. I think in the third wave, uh, it will disperse and Silicon Valley will continue to, to be a magnet for talent, still be where most of the you know, capital is. But some people, including perhaps some on this call, maybe some were in San Francisco three years ago and are somewhere else now. Maybe some on this call were investing just in the Silicon Valley or broader Bay Area a few years ago or starting to invest in, in other places. And I think that will only accelerate over the over the next decade. So I, I don't think there's any anything to fear about, uh, you know, a decline of, of Silicon Valley. I think it, it will force a rethink at any time, uh, any place, but particularly Silicon Valley has been forced to rethink. It's led to a rebirth, rejuvenation, new ideas, you know, new, new industries and so forth. And no doubt that will happen again. Okay. You talked briefly about immigration and immigration visas. Um, are there other issues or policy areas that you think in the current administration in Washington could work on to better support startup success in the U.S.? 
Well, I'm actually working on this. You mentioned in the introduction, I was the co-chair of the first National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which I did, I don't know, 11, 12 years ago. And when Gina Raimondo became as Secretary of Commerce uh, a year and a half ago, uh, she asked for you know a couple things that she should focus on. And I, I said, well, you know, there's several things, including focusing more on regional hubs, uh, but also it might be a good idea to restart that advisory you know, council. And she said, okay, I'll do that, but I want you to you know, co-chair it again. So I'm happy to do it. We actually have a meeting later this week here in, in DC. And, and there are a number of areas that we're focused on, including making sure America leads in some of the industries of, of the future and also moving ahead on this regional hub piece. And there was some legislation that passed this summer uh, that you know, did authorize the funding for the regional hubs. We now need to make sure that gets uh, appropriated and then gets implemented in a, in a, in a smart way. Uh, so I think, uh, for, and even the Treasury Secretary uh, recently, Janet Yellen, uh, just two or three weeks ago, talked about essentially this idea of, of uh, kind of leveling the playing field, creating more opportunity for more places, in some of the themes that we talk about uh, in, in, the, in the Rise of the Rest book. So I think that's promising that there's more of a focus on, 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 expanding uh, the, the, the innovation, capital, talent, job creation, uh, so it's more dispersed across the, you know, the, the country. I think that is definitely a, a step in the right direction. Some of the, the mentioned before, some of the other legislation, including around climate, I think is also helpful. Uh, that, that could be a catalyst for a number of different, uh, you know, different, different sectors. Okay. How, how about that same question at a state or local level? Um, I'm, you know, Gina Raimondo was, um, governor of Rhode Island. And before that, she was a venture capitalist. So she's got a, exactly. a natural understanding of some of these. But if you're talking to a, a mayor or a governor, what are the types of things that that they should be asking themselves or things that would be helpful to encourage a startup culture? Well, I do. I do spend a lot of time with mayors and, and governors, including recently a group of, of, of mayors. And I think you know, I've watched this again. You've been doing this work for a while as well. I've watched this develop over the last decade. Um, and there has been you know, I think a meaningfully pivot and meaningful pivot in terms of rethinking economic growth and really trying to focus on more startups. Some of that is just paying attention. You know, I talked to the, you know, the governor of Virginia um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he's been an hour a day talking to different you know business leaders, including reaching out to you know, promising entrepreneurs just to encourage them and, and you know, figure out ways to showcase some more governors are doing that, more mayors are, are doing that, recognizing that Often the big companies are able to get attention, but the small companies aren't figuring out ways to, to address that. In some places, you know, things like angel tax credits to create more investment capital and the work. Some states have actually created venture vehicles where they uh, are investing in, in, in funds that, that are going to be looking at backing com- some of the companies in, in, their, in their region. So there's a variety of things that, that you know, are being done and, and Different experiments being being run in different cities, different different states. I think the most important thing, though, is this mental shift to saying, you know, we need to really be focusing more on the entrepreneurs, more on the new companies, and less on the you know big CEOs of the big companies. Uh, it was uh, astounding to me when I was starting my role in the state of California how much my conversations with other states and economic development people were we're going to come to your state and convince people to move their headquarters to our state. Exactly. No, it's uh, it's uh, sort of the, it's the obvious thing to start at. It, it leads to, if you're successful, a nice photo op. But if you look, track it over time, it hasn't really worked in terms of the investment. In most cases, there's certainly exceptions in most cases. And I think people are realizing it's better off kind of figuring out how to, you know, launch those, you know, those, those, those new companies to create an environment that really, you know, allows, you know, allows you to win that battle for talent, that battle for capital. Okay, um, it's time for a couple more questions. So how about uh, advice to education leaders, um, particularly in post-secondary, in a world in which startups and the jobs that they create are going to be an important part of the employment picture as well? What what can they be doing to help encourage the the mindset and capabilities that people need to be successful entrepreneurs and the ecosystems around them? I think some of what we've talked about, I think, is trying to, you know, when people are on campus, figure out ways to create that environment that's supportive of entrepreneurs. Some, some, like I remember in, um, in, uh, in Utah, 
uh, one of the universities actually created a dorm focused on entrepreneurs and, you know, to really kind of gather them together, sp spotlight. So there are a bunch of different things happening in different places, but the intention of Purdue, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, they've really focused quite significantly on launching startups out of, out of Purdue. So it has been super helpful in, uh, in the animate Daniel's done a, a great job on, on that after being a, a, you know, fortune 500 CEO, really kind of doubling down on, on trying to support that, entrepreneurial community and and as you say some of it is a mindset and you know some encouraging more creativity risk-taking experimentation you know educating people particularly in this next wave we're into where of course the technology is important but there are other aspects that are important partnerships are critically important to really really revolutionize healthcare or many of these other sectors is not what any one technology enables or any one company does. It's more of a systems level uh, kind of uh, integration and transformation that's, that's required. So people have that understanding around forming partnerships, I think is, is helpful. Even understanding some of the nuances of policy are becoming more important because most of these sectors that are you know, up for grabs in the next you know decade do tend to be more regulated things like like healthcare and fintech and so forth. Uh, so I think there's some you know sensitivity on that and some training on that would be uh, would be helpful. And then once people graduate, uh, as I said earlier, it, trying to figure out some way to at least make it possible for the ones who want to to stay where they are as opposed to feel like they have to move away and some way to stay connected to your alumni in, in general, but with a particular focus on entrepreneurship. A number of universities have done uh, uh, different uh, weekends where they try to get people back. And when the people are coming back, usually for a big football game weekend or something like that, they build a lot of programming around it, including educating people about what's happening in that local community with entrepreneurs. So it could lead to mentoring, could lead to investment, could lead to you know customers, other kinds of things. So just leverage that you know, that asset you have uh, and, and the people that have been dispersed and figure out a way to have them be supportive of the entrepreneurs that are, you know, that are, that are emerging, you know, kind of from those universities. Great. Well, we're down to the time for last two questions. Um, so Steve, I've been working with you in different ways on these issues for more than a decade now, and you're clearly passionate about this and we've had a good discussion about many reasons why, but I just want to ask you more personally, you could be doing a lot of things at this stage in your life than getting on a bus every year and touring a bunch of cities around the country. What, why, why are you so excited about it? What, what drives you to do this at this stage? I think I have to, I think it's something I, I, I wasn't looking to do, but, but uh, yeah, the more I learned about it, the more I felt it was important to do. And it's something I think I can contribute to and shining a spotlight on it, changing some policies, shifting some of the, you know, the flows of capital. And, and I just feel like it's, it's important, uh, uh, to support this next generation of entrepreneurs. It's important to do it in a more inclusive way. It's important to make sure that we are doing everything we can to create more opportunity for more people in more places. I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., which, as you know, has gotten hyper-partisan, gridlocked, you know, kind of not much people can agree on. Uh, we usually can get agreement on issues around innovation, entrepreneurship. And part of the reason it's hyper-partisan is because, as you know, our politics have become uh, you know, very challenging. And there are many aspects for it. I don't want to over, overly simplify it. But one aspect, I think an important aspect, is an opportunity gap that exists in this country. And, you know, the folks listening who are uh, in, in the Bay Area, a lot of great things are happening there. And, and many of you are, are leading the charge. Uh, and, you know, congratulations and thanks. But there are a lot of people in different parts of the country that have been left out, that have been left behind, that the uh, they're seeing disruption as job destruction in their families and their community. Uh, and we need to offset that, at least in part, by backing new companies that can create new jobs and not just coding jobs. I was in Detroit yesterday and there are a couple of companies we backed there. Uh, they're doing really well. One's called Shinola that basically was focused, started, it's not focused on watches and other, other goods, but was retraining auto workers to instead of building cars to build watches. And that company's you know, scaled up and now I think has you know, well over a thousand employees. Uh, another company called StockX, which is sort of a stock exchange for things, started just five, six years ago. We were the initial seed investor. They now have 1,500 employees and some are focused on technology. Many are focused on kind of managing the warehouse, authentication. It's kind of an e-commerce business initially focused on sneakers when they send the sneakers in, you know, that, that and they have to be authenticated. So that actually are, are jobs for people that aren't necessarily, you know, coded. We have to launch more of these companies and more parts 
parts of the country. We have to create more jobs, not just the, you know, the the technology jobs, but a broad range of jobs. Otherwise, this divide we have in the country is only going to grow worse. And, and, and that will, I think, you know, uh, disadvantage us in, in what is now uh, global competition for the future. Okay, last question for you, Steve, uh, from our audience. Um, what was the best piece of professional advice you've ever received? And if you will, who was it from? Well, I got a lot of it. It's be hard to pick one. I, I, there, there's, there is uh, one of our venture capitalists, um, uh, Frank Coffith, actually, Kleiner Perkins Coffith Buyers, and uh, one of the iconic Silicon Valley firms. He was on our board for, for many years. And I remember I was pretty young at the time. I was initially, was when I was co-founder, I was the EVP. And then a few years later, I became the CEO. And I was like 30-ish or what have you. Uh, and he really stressed the importance of people, which which seems obvious, but most people don't focus on it. They say it, but they don't focus on it enough. And also on making sure that you are kind of focused on the next chapter of your business. You're not just managing what exists, but imagining what you're going to be in a year or two and, and kind of planning in advance of that. So you kind of know where the, the puck is going. I thought that was, was uh, important advice. And I also got advice from... Uh, our co-founder Jim Kimsey, who was a couple decades older than me, and and you know we had some difficult days where we almost didn't didn't make it, and he kept reminding me and our team that uh, uh, I think it's a Nietzsche quote: it "Doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger." That sometimes you know these what looks like a, a problem, maybe even a crisis, maybe an existential threat, actually can it sometimes turn into an opportunity, and you just have to keep you know, moving forward and, and kind of, you know, and, 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 you know, don't give up. So often people give up just at the wrong time. They, if they just kept fighting a little longer, it, it might've been the breakthrough that they long been hoping for. Well, thank you. I more unfortunately at the end of our time, but as always, it's great to spend some time with you, Stephen. a big round of virtual applause. And thank you for Steve case, author of the rise of the rest for joining us today. Uh, we encourage everyone to go to your local bookstore and pick up a copy if you haven't already, or they're available online on the Commonwealth Club's website. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org events. Again, thank you, Steve, for spending some time with us today. Good luck on the book. And thank you for helping encourage the rise of the rest. I'm Lenny Mendoza. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.